comedy podcast time, ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready for it? Let's turn that old volume down. Ooh, hot. That's hot. That's hot. Hey. Hey, that's a hot one there. Okay. Well, let's see. Where's the best way to hold this thing? Here we go. Hey, Kenneth Allen, I'm bringing you another one. I swear to you, these are going to come out on a weekly basis now. So I've been banking a few here and there, and I know that I haven't gotten to you in a, in a while. But uh, anyway, you can uh, find me here on a regular basis now. Traumedypodcast.com. Stitcher Radio. Traumedy Podcast time. Tell everybody. We're going to save lives. And I've been thinking about things because, well, it's a new year. Time to reassess. Time to reboot. Time to think about stuff. And I've been thinking about the fear. The fear. The fear. What scares me the most? And what I've gained from fear. What have I gained from facing it? What have I gained or lost from running away from it? Is there a real evolutionary advantage to facing it? What the hell does it mean, man? I, uh, and why do we get these feelings? And sometimes fear is just trepidation. Sometimes fear is legitimate, scared for your life fear. Sometimes it's just because you don't want to do... I, listen, I'm getting ahead of myself. What to you scares you? You know, why do we like scary movies? That's the thing that always trips me out. I'm getting right into it today because I, I've been thinking about this on the way home from one job and the, the next. So I'm, you know, I'm jumping from teaching, from, from firefighting to teaching today. And I just, on the way home, started thinking about my trip to Afghanistan back in 2008, uh, 2007. No, it was, geez, when was that? Was that eight, 2008, I want to say. It was. Now, I haven't talked about this chapter in my life to you because um, like all firefighters and people that do stuff like this, I don't want to boast. I don't want to be somebody that says, you know, I, I actually went over there and kind of, you know, did my part over in the war zone. But I think if I bring it to you in, in a different way, I think if I think of this as what it really is, and it's me getting out these stories pushing it forward and, and just giving little anecdotes. It's, uh, it's worthwhile and hopefully it's entertaining to you. So hopefully you pass it on to your friends and family. That's, that's the goal here is just to get people listening and think about stuff like this deep, heavy conversations with yourself, wrestling with yourself figuratively, literally sometimes the fear. And I'm talking about the fear. Have you ever felt of fear that that real stifling fear that almost aside from the ice water in your veins aside from the weakened knees like it almost makes you tired it almost your brain tricks you into thinking just go to sleep there's nothing you can do about it like you're gonna just go you're gonna die like don't even try and fight it and you're done, like you're done. And you're so stupid for putting yourself in this. That's how I felt the night before I flew out from Dubai to Kabul. Back in January of 2008. It was 11 years ago this month. 
And I only think about it because I wonder how much I've gained from confronting it. And how much of it was done because of ego, because I needed to face it. And, and how much of it was really just because I'd had good experiences pushing forward. So let me give it to, to you this way. I'll tell the story of Kenneth Allen in Afghanistan, chapter one. I had an intimate friend, intimate friend. I don't know if I've spoken about him already, but he was already in, F, in Iraq. Uh, doing some shit, doing some crazy shit. And I mentioned to him, as I was working as a new medic, about two years as a new medic in Oakland, that I was beginning to get a bit bored, not so much of the job, um, but of the politics of the ambulance service. Uh, and, and, and not so much, I mean, here's the great thing about the service. You can pick up a, a shift anytime you want. Um, and you can get paid and you can see real, real medical emergencies, real traumas. You know, uh, I've never seen as many gunshot wounds and as many uh, assaults and overdoses as I did in those two years in Alameda County. But the people, aside from some very wonderful, shining di diamonds in the rough there, who I treasure to this day, it was a lot of this rumor mill, incestuous, she said, you know, so-and-so did that. Oh, they did this. You know, they apparently had sex in the ambulance. All this shit that just went around and somebody had a beef with somebody, but they wouldn't talk about it out loud. And, and I tell you, I was getting kind of bored there. And you might be getting bored here, here in this, because we're not talking about the fear. Maybe this is a bit of the stagnation fear, fear that I was being underutilized. And I told that to uh, this friend and he said, look, man, they're dying literally for medics over here. Do you think you'd ever want to do that? And I jumped at it. Something in my heart dropped and then kind of jumped forward. And I went, yes. And I stopped myself from saying, no, 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 never mind, never mind. I said, yes, and left it at that. He said, really? Yeah. Okay, I'll ask around to see if there's anybody here because there aren't any medics. I'm an EMT and I'm working as a medic because I'm the closest thing that comes. I said, okay. I said, really? All right, I will ask. And it wasn't a day later that he called and said, where do you want to go, Iraq or Afghanistan? And I said, could I work with you in Iraq? He said, no, we, we got our own crew here. We can't get you over here just yet. If you really want to, maybe we can swing something in a year or two. But I have a friend here who has a friend who's starting, who's starting a medevac company in Afghanistan, and he needs medics right away. And they're asking for people, and your name, you know, I told him about it, and he sounds like you, you qualify for this. So I said, what do I get, basically have to do? And he's like, well, you just do ALS care, and you'll be fine. You do that. And really, you're just kind of starting off a fledgling company in Afghanistan. And something inside me just went, I mean, yeah, yeah. And it was all balls and gung-ho at this point. It was all, oh, my God, envisioning myself over there, saving lives, you know, in the desert, like, what the hell did I know about Afghanistan? I really didn't know the terrain. I didn't know that it's not hot in the winter. In fact, it's sub-zero temperatures. That it's in a 
toilet bowl of a valley, downtown Kabul, and you sit in the aerated filth of the open sewers that float when it gets hot up into the atmosphere and you're breathing excrement. I didn't know that I would be outside of the green zone, nowhere near a military base, living in the what would be considered the suburbs of Chari Now, which is a neighborhood in Kabul, I think. I mean, as far as I know, it was Chari Now. I don't know if it was a street. I don't know if it was a neighborhood. I don't know what. I didn't even know what that name meant then. But I knew I want to see it for the first time. I want to know what this is all about. I want to be there so I can say to my kids, I mean, these are, I want to say I was there. And they say, what did you do? Did you do anything in the war, Dad? I say, yeah, I was there. I did this. I saw it for myself. And a big, big part of me, the inclination, the, the, the big driving force was, I want to see it so I can make my own opinions on this. And so I said, yes. And he said, there's going to be somebody calling you in the next week. Tell him your information. Email him some stuff. This is back in, 20, in 2008 when, you know, you're emailing stuff. And I went, that's how you're going to do it. I don't have to send him a hard copy. It's all by email. Yeah. Send him your info. He's going to talk to you on the phone. They're going to see if you've ever used firearms. But I don't even know if that's necessary. But... It'd be good, you know, they know that you, they sh that you have shooting experience and they know that, you know, you work as a medic in Oakland and they know about Oakland. The company was uh, semi-overseas already. And I said, okay, and I'll wait. And uh, that contact came through. The guy said, hey, mate, how you doing? Uh, you know, my name's, uh, I think it was, this one was Marcus, who was the runner of the company. And he said, yeah, and, and I had a good interview with him. He said, are you sure you want to come over here, right? You know? And I said, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, all those little, like, do I really want, I mean, here's a chance to say, I said, yeah, I do. Right, right, right. So I'll send you the information. I'll send you the uniform. I'll send you the qualification information and I'll send you the life insurance. And then I'll send you the plane ticket. And I said, yes to all of it. I said yes to my ego. I said yes to prove myself. But I had no idea the other side of that coin and what it was going to feel like in two weeks when I flew out from America on a beautiful United Arab Emirates flight to Dubai where I uh, met up with the other contact there, Darren, and got ready to fly into Kabul. The day that I came in, this flight was, I mean, I'd never flown overseas like that. You know, the, the, the towel wipes, the, the, the warm. Oh, I, it seemed like first class. It wasn't. I, I had the uh, seats all to myself. I laid out people, you know, women in these cool little pillbox hats and the drape veils came over and you know fed me and asked for what would i'd like to drink and, and they were just it smelled so good in there it had that like smell of persian spices i thought this is gonna this is pretty exotic man i'm getting excited now i've been around i've been to uh, i've been to thailand and stuff but i hadn't flown in like that in such style so i get into dubai that night and nobody really had cell phones. I, 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 had a, I had a flip phone at that point. But um, 
I wasn't using it at that point. We were, you know, still predominantly talking to each other via email. And I had this little old laptop, like a Toshiba laptop. And I got into the, uh, the hotel, checked in. I mean, you have to understand what this is like. I went shopping with my brother and he's like, okay, here's the, some stuff you're going to probably need over there. And, um, you know, I just want to help you out, be safe and buying the uniform at REI, um, buying some, some goggles for windstorms or sandstorms and, and just getting prepared for the weeks. And then I had Christmas. I knew I was going and I told my parents the day after Christmas, which was my birthday. And the crazy thing was my parents for my birthday present bought me suitcases and they said, you should travel. You're young, you're 28, 29, you should travel. And um, I said, okay, well, guess what? (laughs) In the next week, I will be over in Afghanistan. And just like when I had the uh, cancer, they just went, huh, okay, well, okay. And that was really all that was said on the subject, except for a couple of times where they said, be safe over there. I said, yep, I know. Now, I always thought about my dad because he always said things like, you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations in order to grow. You got to be like a square peg in a round hole. You got to know what it feels like to be uncomfortable because then you start to spread out and use other skills that, you, you, that sit dormant. But you only hone those when you have to. And that was the reason that, you know, back in high school, I was kind of a nerdy kid in eighth grade, but I decided to play football because he said, like, you got to get out there and meet people and play something like this. And I was like, well, not really a football player. I mean, I've never played. And he said, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out soon enough. You'll figure out how to play. And I got stomped on the first year. But I met everybody. And I met the older classmen. And eventually I got accepted in. And that did well for my life. And then I went to college and I was excited to be that square peg again. And then, man, did that come to fruition because I met so many amazing people that I miss to this day. But it wouldn't have happened if I didn't say, I'm not going to a community college. I'm going to get away from my family and away from anything that I know and be alone and be alone with new people. And boy, did that work out in my benefit. Some, some good, some bad, but man, it's better to get out and tra- challenge yourself. And I think that I had those things in mind when I said, yes, I'll go to Afghanistan, a war zone in 2008. And I didn't truly start grasping this until the first night that I ran into Darren, who was my contact in Dubai at the bar. He said, yeah, come out and meet me, mate. Well, I mean, I'm putting the voice on because it was an email. And I went to this bar, which is she-she bar. I mean, you know, it's Vegas of the Middle East. It's it's all Trumpian, you know what I mean? Marble and brass and um, opulence and hookers, which was so bizarre to me. And um, I ran into Darren, and he's saying, look, man, over a gin and tonic. Look, you got nothing to worry about. You got nothing to worry about, mate. I mean, it's super safe over there. I know everybody's making a big fucking deal about it. But uh, now you're going to be fine, mate. I've been over there twice so far. My brother's getting it all set up. 
Everything's going to be just great, mate. Trust me. We'll take care. We'll fu- we watch you. We got your ass, mate. You know? And I, it's going in and out. But I said, okay. All right. Okay. Cool. Cool. The very next night, or that night, there was an assault on a hotel that was an expatriate hotel. I think it was like the Ariana or something like that in Kabul, where <clears throat> a group of masked terrorist assailants ascended upon the hotel with AKs and shot up the bar and the first floor of the hotel, killing about 12 expatriates and escaping into the night. The next morning, I meet up with Darren, who's sitting there having a Bloody Mary. And he goes, yeah, mate, I'll get you a Bloody Mary, right? And I get it, and he goes, all right, fuck everything I said last night. Uh, Everything's fucked up. Yeah, it's going to be fucking hard. We thought in the middle of the winter, they don't usually do such terrorist acts because it's too cold. But uh, yeah, no, mate, you're going to have to be on our fucking toes, mate. And I thought, oh, there's no security. We have nothing. And fear started to creep in in like whispers, like, what the fuck did you just sign up for, man? Like, what am I doing? What am I doing here? Oh my God, what am I doing here? I'm the ant that strayed away from the colony. And I'm that one that you see on your picnic cloth. And you just go, fuck this one. Because I got nothing. I have no anonymity. I, I am out in the middle of this storm, cast without a sail, floating. And I thought, I'm, I'm actually six foot two and blonde. How am I going to blend in? I'm literally up above everyone else. And if anybody wants to kill me, well, it's not going to be hard to spot me, is it? And there's no turning back. I can't call the owner now and say, hey, look, Marcus, uh, never mind. I, 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 you know, now, now ego's hitting me. No way. You're not doing that, number one. Two, you can't anyway. So don't start thinking that way. So we went out that day, went and got our visas for downtown, for, for Kabul, for Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, I think we had to sign, it must have been a two-month or three-month three visa, I think, um, it might've been for less, but you had to go and renew and they're stamping this and they're looking at Darren and I, they're looking at Darren and me and thinking like, okay, you're, you're signing up to go there now, huh? Okay. Stamping that passport. I'll never forget like the, the sound it made when it hit. And I thought this is all happening. Like, it's like if you're, you know, the shackles going on before the lead up to the hangman. And it's like all these little practical variables, not like, not like thought stuff, but like little moments that make it real. Like the sound of the, of the big stamp, you know, almost sounds like a jail cell closing. Um, the smell of diesel heaters where they're cooking food, uh, that smell, you know, the, the feeling of just the cold air. So that stuff starts to, to, well, not in Dubai, of course. It was beautiful. It was nice. And it still smelled like that, that, that Persian, you know, spices, cinnamon and cardamom and stuff in the air. And, and it really is like Vegas there. Like everyone's screaming and shouting and having fun. And people are driving Lamborghinis. In fact, President Bush 
was there in Dubai out of some random, you know, uh, uh, um, serendipitous uh, reason. He was there when I flew in. And so everyone's kind of, you know, you know, they don't really like Bush, but I mean, only there's there's nobody really liked him. In fact, there's more people that like him now due to the Trump situation than than ever did in office. But we were walking through big city concerts and, and, and street fairs. And I'm thinking one more day I'm going. Well, then that day turned into an avalanche. Uh, Literally a snowstorm hit Kabul and I had to stay for another three days. And it was almost like you're kind of your your R&R before you go in back to it. But I had no idea, you know, and and so we kind of lived it up. We we just went to all the random places, some car shows or car uh, dealerships and looked around and I took pictures and I just started pining and thinking, of what's going to happen. And that night before, man, the fear crept in, and I've never felt anything like that in my life, really before or since. There might have been something in Afghanistan that I'll get to later where that fear started to creep in, but it was it was more visceral, and it wasn't as abstract and as pending and as oppressive as that night before I flew in. So let me tell you about it. The night before I went to the hotel room and Darren said, all right, see you in the morning, mate. We get out of here about 10 a.m. We're gonna fly in there, it's cold. So put all your shit on because it's gonna be fucking cold. It was 23 below, but the night before, I downloaded onto my computer, I think, like 50 Adam Carolla podcasts. And this was back in the day where you, you had to find them. And it was when you had Danny Bonaducci on. And uh, I downloaded like 50 of them just so I had some kind of contact because we didn't have internet at the house. We didn't have, we barely had electricity. And so I'm thinking I'm going to need some kind of entertainment. I had books, but I wanted to hear American voices if I could. And I knew that I was going to need that. So I spent my time doing that. And I started to feel this pain, this absolute terror. Terror is a word. It's not even fear. It's terror where panic sets in. And I, and I, and I want to, I want to run. I wanted to run and just just get out of there and and I thought there's nothing I can do it was like an execution day I can I can't imagine how those people feel but it was just like tomorrow I go I didn't sleep a wink that night I stayed up thinking about it what do you do when you see the the the, the fear in in the distance and you you look straight at it and it just smiles and waves back. And you think, well, I can't, I can't think about that. I can't think about that. And then fear in the distance goes, yeah, you, know, you can't think about that. Yeah. No, I'll be here, though. I'll see you in like two hours, though. Hour 59 minutes, though, right now. So don't think about me, though. Hour and 58 minutes, though. But I, don't think about me. It's like just, you know, it, it's not going to go away. And it's getting closer. It's like it follows, you know, that movie where it just keeps walking forward. It doesn't run. It just keeps following you. No matter how far away you run, 
it's still walking towards you. And eventually it will catch you. It will catch up. It will overtake you. What do you do with that fear? What did I do with that fear? I, I busied myself downloading radio shows. I remember trying to meditate on the hotel floor. I remember stretching. I remember not drinking. I, I thought this is just, there's no point. Just get ready for this. Face it. And I thought of things like, well, I did the fire department. I mean, I did, I did the uh, football. And you just kind of laugh at yourself. I did wrestling. And I remember something distant and vague of what that felt like when I was going to a tournament. And I had to wrestle two or three times that day, maybe even four times. Having to face that opponent or knowing that I'm going to be fighting all out physically. Four different times. Twelve rounds of, of three-minute matches. Or twelve, you know, three-minute segments of just exerting myself to exhaustion and then trying to think. And I remember just at times when I was wrestling, just thinking, dude, I don't want to do this. I don't want to get at 4 a.m. and have to get on a bus and really just be by myself and listen to my Walkman, listen to Jane's Addiction and just zone out knowing I'm going to have to fight four times today. But the back of my brain is something saying, you did it then, you're going to do this now. Guess what? You're going to do this. And it was saying, you know, I'd say, but I've never done anything like this. I've never done this before. My brain is saying, well, now you're going to. So this is your first time. Record this in your memory. It's nowhere near what people must have felt when they were riding in on the, on the, trans, on the troop transports to Normandy. It's nowhere near that. And it makes me think, what did those people feel like? And what would I have felt knowing that? Feeling that the night before. And how many men and women have sat there the night before something like this and had to think about what was going to happen in an hour and 57 minutes? A day before. How many people have had to face and sit in their fate and await the most terrifying moment of their lives. That's the fear. What do you do with that fear? How do you face that fear? Do you face it all the time? Do you look at it and then busy yourself, look away, think of other things, dot your I's, cross your T's, get all of your amenities together, do what you need to do to get right with your family and God and think straight? Or do you just lose your shit and go out and party the night before? Do you just shoot your, your whole mentality in the foot and just say, fuck it, I don't care. Tomorrow, you know, I face it. Tonight, who cares? Tonight, we celebrate, you know. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, we ooh, you might just die. Meanwhile, they're telling me stories like, you know, these airlines, the guys, one of the stories was the guy actually was trying to open up the uh, cockpit window because it was fogging up. So the pilot was trying to open up this window at, you know, 50,000 feet. 
just tales of insanity and like there's seats missing out of the planes. Like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What, 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 what possessed me to do this? Ego? Trying to live up to things? Was I truly that obsessed with my ego and my, and my, care, my, my persona to put myself in harm's way in, to this level? And that, that feeling like, bro, you did this to yourself. But none of that matters because in an hour and 56 minutes, you're packing your shit up. You're closing this door in the hotel in Dubai. You're going down to the bottom story, turning in your hotel key and checking out. And you're going to meet this guy out in front, get a taxi, get to the airport and start going through customs. Fear is the mind killer, says Frank Herbert. And I used that a lot when I thought about how terrified I was. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will allow to pass over me and through me. When it is past, I will turn my eyes to where fear has gone. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. That's a quote, more or less, from Dune, from what Paul Atreides would say when he's faced with this monumental issue. And it's a mantra. You can believe in it as hard as you can. You can... You can try and convince yourself of it. You could use it as, as rosary beads and clink through it and say your things to be doing something tedious as you have to approach the noose, the hangman, you know. But it's something to think about and it's something to absorb. And I used that. In fact, my father in the 89 quake, when he was tunneling himself and his partners down into a apartment complex, an apartment complex that had collapsed three stories. Said he was repeating it to himself. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. You're, re- you're quoting a book, like a, a science fiction novel. And he's like, you better believe it, man. It's what kept me going forward. It's what kept me sane when I was hearing portions of that structure collapse in the distance, when I had to cut through one piece of reinforced wood beam here and there and I had to hold my breath cut it and see what happened that feeling is indescribable and in many ways it's similar to people and in many ways it's completely subjective to yourself but what do you do with it to me I just go forward anyway You just go forward. It doesn't matter how you feel when you do it. It's whether you do something or not. And I packed up everything. And sure enough, about 15 minutes before I left, my body went, go to sleep. Now you can sleep. Now I'm tired. Like a last-ditch effort to just try and sleep through the appointment that I made to get on this taxi and get on a plane to take off. It's always how it is. Your body at the last minute goes, no, I'm tired now. 
and you almost want to murder your body for doing that to you. It's such a sinister bastard sometimes. And you go, no, now you don't. Now I'm having an argument with myself like that. No, you don't, you son of a bitch. Now you don't get to do that. And <laughs> walking out of there going like, nope, you don't get to fucking do that. And now I'm angry. I've, I've now sublimated my fear into some kind of anger to push myself forward. You know, all these things that you end up doing are, you know, they're, they're, they're coping mechanisms. And I met D Darren outside. And we got on that taxi. We went over into the customs. Basically, it looked like the Santa Barbara airport. It's a two-terminal situation, as far as I remember. It's nothing. There's no electronic stuff. There's no, there's no TV screens. It's, you know, you're going into this uh, airport. And, and, and we're going to the side that flies into Afghanistan. It's not very upkept. From what I remember, I, I, I think at this point I was blacking out and really not trying to remember too much here. But I remember the dirt on the plane and thinking, that's a bad omen. And I remember getting on that plane and took off. And it was like any other plane ride. And now I'm up in the air and I'm thinking, next stop is downtown Kabul. And the fear just kind of becomes ancillary. It's just not important anymore. It's like, yeah, yeah, I understand. And you're like, okay, I get it. Nothing more you can tell me. So I guess I'm just going to wait and see what happens next. And a few hours later, we land on the tarmac in a frozen Afghanistan. We get out of that plane and onto the tarmac. There's no, there's no little jetty that connects up to the, to the door. You, you walk down a flight of stairs and you're standing there in, this, in the snow and the ice. And you'd spit on the ground and within a few seconds it's, it would freeze over. And I'm standing there and I'm looking around at Afghanistan and I went, holy shit. So this is it. So now begins my time as a target. Do, and then thinking, do they really want to hurt me? I mean, what the hell have I done? I, I, I'm here to help out. But do they know? No, they don't know that. And now I'm sitting on this tarmac and I'm ready. I mean, I'm not ready, but there's nothing else for me to think about. This is it. I, I'm now the guy out in the fucking wind, blonde hair, put a beanie on that thing, sir. Try and hide your red beard. And keep sunglasses on so they don't see your green eyes. And just walk. Get to the next checkpoint. We got to the checkpoint. We went through customs. Everyone's staring at me. Everyone's staring at Darren, who's halfway drunk at this point, going, nah, it's easy, mate. Just don't even worry about it. We're lifesavers, doctors. He's telling everybody we're doctors because, you know, we're paramedics. But I don't think he was, he was an EMT. And he's saying, yeah, we're doctors, mate. And so we got through customs, no problem. And we started down the road from there where they had at the airport, um, I believe it was a MIG. There's a, uh, a MIG that's poised in the air as a statue, like it's taking off. And I remember going like, that's right. Like, 
I'm in the territory where the Russians invaded in the 80s. Like, this is, this is for real. This is all real. These people have faced the Russians. And more or less, with their determinism, beat them. And now we're fighting this war with them. And I'm in the middle of it, not knowing which way to go next. Driving down that road in a taxi, going to Chari now. Guy next to me is driving a wagon with a donkey. And there's cars all around him. And this is the locomotion of the city right now, getting into downtown Afghanistan, downtown Kabul. It's freezing cold, slush on the ground. We're making our way through the skyscrapers, getting further into suburbia and just seeing concrete structures crutched up against the mountains and this fog, this brown smog of fecal matter, kerosene and chimney smoke. Hovering above us, looming, you know. And I thought, well, I got three months of this. Let's just start recording. And I looked at this whole thing as it's going to be me for the next three months. I'm going to feel horrible. I'm going to be scared on a regular basis. And I could die. And let's just see what happens. That's a different kind of fear altogether, too, to me. That fear of long-term stress. Long-term, afraid to go to the windows of a house because there could be a sniper trained in to shoot at you. Uh, Long-term, every time you get in the car, you're afraid to start it. Anytime you're driving down the road and somebody catches your eye and sees that you're white, looking at you with murder in their eyes. Um, I haven't felt that kind of hate. I hadn't up until that point. And I just knew it was a matter of time. I had to put in my time. I had to try and get things done, make a good name for myself, make a good name for the company, and get out alive. Anyway, that's the first part of this story. If you felt that fear, you know what I'm talking about. And there are guys now that I'm talking to in the fire department who are starting to feel that fear on a regular basis. Not because of the fires, but because of what they may see on calls. Because of what they might have to see and how they might fail at saving someone's lives. That's the scary part to them. Not that they may die, but that they may choose to go into a room and find nobody, but the room next to them had a child that died. That anxiety and that constant chronic fear will drive you mad. Unless you face it 
unless you talk about it. And you start getting it out. And I'm only talking about this today because I really want to tell this tale. But today I was driving around and I had a friend say they, they've had it with PTSD. They're, they're losing it. And you wouldn't believe how many firefighters and police officers and medics and nurses walk around like this every day, gripping sanity with claws. The only thing you can do to save yourself and your family and the ones you love is to talk about it. Find a group to talk about this, to talk with. And fucking live it and believe in it and try and find the good in what you did. Now, I'm only saying this because, shit, I'm still, I still think about it. And it was years that I never slept well and I still have bouts of that now. And I see reflex mechanisms kicking in that I know were concreted in Afghanistan. One of them is that thing where I will go from fear to anger just like that. Because it was the only way I could cope with the fear. Fear is crippling. Anger is a way to move forward. And it's that thing in your head just goes, well, don't fucking think about it. Do something. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. What the fuck? What the fuck are we? And you start that thing. And it's, and I realized it's a direct causation from this stress that I had to face there on a regular basis. It was one way to push forward. And if you got that feeling, talk to yourself, talk to people around you and get some fucking help, dude, because I don't want anybody else to die from suicide or drug overdose or do something fucked up at a fire because you're too strapped to the fear bomb and you're just trying to dismantle it while you're trying to, you know, get into a fire and take care of somebody. But all the while, that voice in the back of your head saying, you're not going to be able to do this. Do you think you could do it? Oh, my God, you may not be able to do it. You you got to face it and push forward. Um, have you felt this fear? You know what I'm talking about? It's terrifying. But it's necessary. Is it, is it really necessary? Well, to that extent, I don't know. When it gets to the point where your hand is wrapped around a live wire and you don't know why you're gripping. Are you gripping because of ego? Or are you gripping because your muscles are locked around it and there's no way for you to let go? How much control do you have over that? You need to find a way to turn that power off, let go of that live wire occasionally. And I think, well, we were just talking about something like emotional intelligence. Can you, can you outthink your emotions? That is the sign of a truly intelligent human being. We have that skill, but are we using it? Are we practicing that? Sometimes I'm very good at it. Sometimes I'm not at all good at it. But that's what, to me, talking like this is accomplishing. And that's what I think going to speak to a counselor or a psychologist is accomplishing. 
You're saying, I don't care how other people may view me. This is not done from ego. This is do- done because I want to be healthy and I want to be able to outthink my limbic reptilian shortcomings. And I want myself and my family to prosper. And man, when you look at it like that, you're facing your fear years later, talking about the most terrifying things that you've ever gone and confronted, reliving them, and finding ways to cope. Is there anything more heroic than that? All this bullshit that you're a pussy because you talk about your feelings is how people drink themselves to death. That is the coward's way out. You want to be a a real human and a real hero? Get some help. Conquer your reptile. You know, and, and it's not as hard as you may think. By the way, I made it back from Afghanistan. And I'm here. And in that mindset, it was worth it. It was worth it to push myself to the level of how much can I seriously take the emotional pull and and weight of what I'm doing and the stress of the situation and rationalize that I will find a way to get out. I will do what I need to to survive. And then I will seek some help if I need to afterwards so that I clear myself of this and I make myself better again. And then I can go out and speak to others and I can, and I can help and take new challenges on and know that, well, I got through this. I'm going to get through the next thing. And with that, I'll see you on the next episode. If you got it, you can use it. Love you all.